Well, I don't know if you noticed, but um, you know when we do in the worship courses, those songs, um, do you notice how the, the guys on that one kind of guys sing a part and the girls sing a part had the easy part? At least it seemed that way. Maybe it says something about our singing ability, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. I pray that you would um, allow for me to speak with uh, joy and confidence and, and with the uh, words that come from your heart. And may our hearts be soft to hear what you want to say to us. Uh, we pray that you would be present and this would be a holy moment as we, we hear in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you are, are really tired about hearing the balloon boy story? Yeah, okay. So, so am I as well. But I have to just say what amazes me of that whole thing is how people rally together when they have a vision, they see something, and they are concerned about it, and they recognize a need. And, and how everything kind of congeals together. The police forces are engaged all over the place. Television crews on the scene. All kinds of people watching for hours is this almost uh, like this balloon thing. It looks like a, something from outer space is flying across. And, and then um, the, air, the airlines are even involved as traffic controllers begin to divert air traffic around it. And it's, it's total engagement around a vision. Well, our vision is to be a multi-generational church growing in our love for God and people, relevantly engaged as followers of Jesus in our local community and throughout the world. Our desire is to inspire every generation in this pursuit of following Jesus and knowing Him and allowing this Jesus we know and the relationship we have with Him to begin to bring together a community where in this community people um, love and, and, and accept and and grow with one another. And then in that community, there's honesty and truth. Like when Jesus showed up, he's full of grace and truth. And, and that mixture of grace and truth really allows us to, to come into the presence, but not stay the same way. And, and so we grow in community, all for the purpose of something far greater than ourselves. And that is that we might impact the world that we live in. So that as we encounter God together and as we grow in community together, we also have our own communities, the places that we go to where we can make an impact in the, in the world that we live in. And our vision is that the, there are people out there, there are six-year-olds who are off course or adrift or in a family situation that's really difficult. And there are, there are teenagers who are in a place where they're seeking their identity and, and they're seeking to grab onto something. And there are, there are families and, and marriages that are, that are struggling. There are families that are under great strain and stress due to the economy, all kinds of things. And we don't have it in such a way that we have necessarily all things together, but we have a reality of a relationship with a God who has the ability to make an impact in another person's life through us so that their life can be different and their life can be that that is connected to God in a way that allows for them to do what they were eternally planned to do and bring glory to God. And that's kind of what we're about. 
We're here not just meeting so that we can, we can worship together and that we can have a, a friendship socially, which are all really wonderful things. But God calls us to something really big. And that's to be a community that really does go out, like we heard, and, and makes a difference in our world. Creating a space and a place for someone to live. Giving food to someone with the message that Jesus loves them. All those kind of things that we want to be. A church not that has a bunch of mission projects, but a church on mission. And that's what, what this series is, is titled. A church on mission. That we have a mission together and we have a vision that we want to see God do in and through us. And it's really pretty simple. And the underlying message of all this is this whole simple truth that we are called to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the God who loves us. I'll make a few comments before we get into these weeks where we talk about our vision, mission, and values. Um, Next week. And the week following that will be around the area of mission. And next week, Brian Dejewski is going to come and share what God has laid on his heart, how we can be in mission together and fulfill the mission that God has called us to do, which is to help people take their next step and how that can happen. And then after that is the missions weekend, which is really exciting because another one of these impact the world kind of things under this value is, is the relationship that God has given us with the hospitality house of those Chinese students who have come over from China. And in this relationship, we are connecting with them so that we can be hospitable and yet share with them the love that God has given us through Christ. And, and so they're going to come and that week, and there will be two of the students who have come to a, a place of faith in Christ, and they're going to share their story of what God has done. And then the, the following weeks after that will be on our values, where we'll be talking about what it means to encounter God, what it means to grow in community, and then this last of impacting our world. Well, this morning, I want to address two things around our vision statement. And um, they're just two words that, uh, as I wrestled with this, because how do you break this whole thing down? And I decided the most important thing for us as a body right now is to really look at these two words. The one is multi-generational and relevantly engaged. To be a multi-generational church and to be relevantly engaged as followers of Jesus. I put this kind of in the slogan over the last year or so that I've been here, which has been this idea of a multi-generational church, a church that inspires every generation, that leaves open space for the new generation to come in with their new forms of worship and all that God is, is seeking to do through them. So I want to just share with you a few thoughts around this that um, has been on my heart for a while. And the first is, is simply this. The vision to be multi-generational involves building bridges. This vision to be multi-generational involves building bridges. There is a breach generationally. It's just something that happens within the generations. Any parent who raises children knows that there are just differences that are created. And I was speaking with a a mother of a teenager just this last week, and and they were sharing with me some of the generational gap stuff going on. and, And I just said, you know, give it time. Even that will somewhat pass. Well, this is nothing new. Even in Scripture, it talks about these generational divides. If you look at Second Chronicles 10, at 
some point, uh, I'll ask you, you can go ahead and read it, but I'm going to share with you a paraphrase of, of, as I was preparing for this message in August, I was reading a number of things around this whole area of multi-generational ministry and what God seems to be doing today. And in one of them, I read a person, uh, uh, an account that a person gave, which was a paraphrase of Second Chronicles 10. This time when Rehoboam was taking, um, it was becoming the king in place of his father Solomon. And there was a change in this leadership. This person writes this, when Pastor Rehoboam, so he's giving this idea of a pastor coming in, taking over a flock, a, a congregation of people in a sense. When Pastor Rehoboam took over the flock after the long tenure of his father, Pastor Solomon, change management was his number one challenge. Everyone had different ideas about how to lead, you should lead the community. Some of the members of the congregation met him with him to politely suggest some policy changes focused largely on easing the burden of membership requirements. The membership requirements were just too stringent. Literally, Second Chronicles 10 reads this way. Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. This idea, you know, he's putting it in the context of, you know, membership requirements within the reign. Rehoboam requested time to process the request and promised to get back to them in three days. He took the issue to his leadership team. He split them into two groups, the rapidly aging boomers, those leaders, and the emerging X, Y, and I gen leaders. Not surprisingly, they came to him with diametrically opposite advice. He took the advice from the leaders of his own generation and crafted what he thought was a compelling strategy. Again, the words directly from Second Chronicles 10, verse 10 says, My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Tell them, the people, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. That's an interesting response, right? My, just think, my little finger is thicker than my dad's waist. He's basically saying, I'm so big and so tough that you don't want to mess with me. So get in line. Well, as this writer says, people by and large did not get on board with this new vision. In fact, when Pastor Rehoboam sent out a staff member named Adoniram, who was in charge of, let's call it the equipping ministries, which the NIV translates forced labor, the people stoned the staff member. There was a huge church split, a divided kingdom. There were serious worship wars, and in those days, worship wars were literally worship wars. And after two and a half millennia, this author writes, things still have not completely healed. There's a lesson he makes in this, and that is one of the ways that human community fractures is by generations. It's a reality. We talked about that in the last series here about relational healing, the inevitability of conflict. And the fact that with every conflict, there's an opportunity for growth as we seek to respond and listen and follow God's leading and direction. But it's just true. One of the things that raises conflict within a church or within a home or within a business in different places is this generational gap, this, this sense of seeing things differently by the values that are being raised within that day and that age and that culture. Well, what's interesting is when you think about it, there are certain periods of time when those generation gaps kind of show up. And in, in Solomon's day, in Rehoboam's day, there was one of those gaps. 
When we think about our own time, there was a, there was a time, a general, generation gap in our own history that we experienced about 40 to 50 years ago, right? Some of you are too young to know that. Some of you know this well. But in that generation of the 60s, they talk about that generation gap that began to occur. Well, what's interesting is you read it and you look at history as it's continued to develop and you see that in, by the 80s and 90s, this gap has become a canyon in many ways. It, it just continued to split apart. And part of it was due to what was going on technologically with regard to the, the change that's occurring within our culture today. And so in a sense, if the generational gap of the 60s was merely just a gap, it has become a canyon in the 80s and 90s. And we've become more stratified and separated like never before. There are market niches for everything, right? Just think about this. 30 years ago, families had one TV with three channels, right? I mean, 50 years ago. No, it was just 30 years ago. 30 years ago. And if people watched something, they watched the same something together, right? That kind of causes a bit of cohesiveness when you're all sitting around watching Leave it to Beaver, you have some similar values. Well, today there are endless channels. I mean, so many you can't count. And they no longer broadcast, the word broadcast. They now narrowcast to a little sliver in whatever age or interest spectrum is available or out there. In fact, when I think about it with regard to the radio, I grew up in those 60s and 70s. And I remember in the 60s specifically sitting in the car, and it was around the time the Beatles were really kind of making it big. And, and, and my brother and I would listen to KDWB and WDGY. Anybody remember those call letters? Right? And when we'd be in the car, we'd say, come on, Mom and Dad, come on, play. You know, we, we, they're listening to something like CCL. And I think to just quiet us down, they'd turn on the radio so we could listen to that music. And I think they kind of put up with that. But what happened was, at least we all heard kind of a similar music and we were on a similar page. But today, that's not even the case. Most people who are in this, what they call iGeneration, or this millennial group, they're not all on the same page, even musically. In fact, what happens today, if you're driving in the car, you may have the radio on, but the kids in the car may have what on? iPods. They're listening to their own stuff. And even within their own generation, you get some of them who like country and some of them like indie and some of them like bluegrass and some of them like this and that. And there isn't a one uniform sense of even music. And so things have really begun to change and, and this gap has become a canyon and, and there's all kinds of ways that it begins to impact us and, and even separate us. And the church did the same thing. And I don't think this is wrong. But what often would happen is in that generation time, those boomers who were growing up in a, in a more Elvis, Beatles kind of electronic music really at a certain point started to, to make music for the Lord. And they began to sing that music and they really liked that music. And so they wanted to do it and, and, and there was that kind of wrestling of that tension. And because it just couldn't work itself out well, many of them started their own churches. And, and we've seen church after church that's been started around a generation and their preference. Right? And it's stratified all the way through all different sectors. And, and I'm not saying this is necessarily all wrong. I'm just saying that's somewhat reality. But what is interesting is that in this breach, there is, I believe, and it is, you know, as I share with you further here today, there is a coming together. There is a healing of this breach. There's a, this gap which became a canyon. It's beginning to form once again, moving closer back together. And we have the opportunity as people to be healers of that gap.
We have the opportunity to build bridges among the generations. We as a church have a unique opportunity to do that. The values that are interesting in this generation to come may not be music preference being the greatest. What tends to be one of the deep values of this generation coming up is around relationship and community. They hunger to be in relationship with other people. They are hungering to be in relationship with those who are older than themselves. Honestly, as I've noticed this and watched this, it tends to be they want relationship often more than the generation above wants it. And there's reasons for that. One of the reasons that this is happening is because in their generation, what we took for granted around community and the, the mixing of generations has not happened as much in theirs, much less. In fact, due to broken marriages and families, due to the fact that there's this ability to move and to relocate, due to the fact that the extended family is now not just extended but so far removed that they have hardly any contact with them, maybe with parent, grandparents a couple times a year in many cases, there is a hunger developing for this extended, multi-generational kind of community. I remember my father's community just 50 years ago. You know, I talk about being a Cub fan. Well, the reason is, is because my father, he grew up just a few blocks from Wrigley Field. And so, you know, he just kind of, it just flows through the veins, I think. But, you know, where he grew up, it was in a German neighborhood. His parents and their ancestors came from Germany. And they settled in that neighborhood. And in that neighborhood were uncles and aunts and grandparents. And they had someone, I think one of their grandparents, living in their home. Anybody remember that kind of, uh, it wasn't such an extended generation, right? There was, a, there was a mixing and in an in a, in a, in a integrating of generations that is not the same today. Just 30 years ago or so, when I grew up with, in my teenage years with my, um, I, I kind of said 30 instead of going towards the 40. But anyway, um, just a little over 30 years ago, my grandmother, of 70 years of age, lived in our home with us. That was invaluable. I can tell you, to have that kind of ability to rub shoulders with her on a regular basis and to listen to her stories and to be connected to her. And we, I think, are in an opportunity as a generation because of what is happening in the values of this generation, because of the fact there isn't just some one kind of music genre, because of some of these things that are occurring, there is this desire for there to be this multi-mixing of generations. And our vision as a church is to create that kind of multi-generational body. I read a quote recently from an author and, and an internationally recognized speaker. Um, his name's John, uh, John Ortberg. He, he writes in, in one magazine article, he says, I was looking at church websites not long ago and noticed a fascinating dynamic. Many new churches have been formed with multicultural as a part of their DNA and stated value. These churches that are beginning and forming, their, their desire is to not just be one culture, but to bring in all the cultures together, he says. But I have not yet seen a new church plant with multi-generational in its vision statement. In all the cases I read, multi-generational in a church's self-description was a euphemism for we are an aging church that wants to have more young people attending so that we don't die but we don't want to change enough to actually attract any of them to come. What I find is interesting, the reason this is in this vision statement was that wasn't a part of my makeup and heart 
when this was all being birthed? When I was the executive director at Trinity just a few years ago and through this process where I have been involved in a number of churches and as I had opportunity over about a five-year period to kind of really process through this, one of the things that I began to see is how God was moving these generations, working in this um, university kind of setting with, these, with some of these younger people and hearing what's going on and hearing what's happening. As I began to read scripture and as he began to pray about it, one of the things that was true and growing in my heart was there is a need to bring together the generations. There's a need, God, for a church to to come together in such a way that they are this multi-faceted community of people of different ages that begin to, to build into one another's lives. And it was interesting because as I was praying through that process and I was in that process of decision-making and actually when I made the decision, there was a guy who I didn't know very well and didn't, he didn't know, he just heard that I was going to leave the school and go to another church and he came to me and he said, you know what, I was praying and as I was praying about the school, I prayed for you and as I was praying for you, all of a sudden he, he had this kind of sense of God just sharing some things in his heart towards me. And one of the things as he was praying, but he, he said, I was praying and God started saying that God's leading you to a place where there is a, a, a multi-generational opportunity to do something that is new. And I, I go, thank you, God. You kind of confirm when you start to move. And there's an opportunity for each of us. I think in this age, in this next generation, just think about it. This generation from the gap is now about 40 years. It's almost a generation away. God has a way of allowing sometimes generations to die off so they can do something new in the next. And we have an opportunity to be healers of that breach. We have an opportunity to build the kind of bridges that create the kind of place where generations of people can come and and learn to love and and to move together in a way that is attractive to a world that's split and fractured generationally. The vision to be multi-generational means what I believe is intergenerational. You think of the word intergenerational, you can also think of a word like cross-generational or, or things like, you think of cross-pollinate, you know, like you have over here a flower and, 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 and you have the bee taking the substance of life from one to the next. There's this idea that what God, I think, wants to do through the generations is to intergenerationally connect us, that we cross over so that the things that God has taught us about the substance of life can actually be transferred and given to another one. But if you don't have connections, it doesn't happen. And so we're seeking to kind of build that kind of a place where that can happen. In fact, um, we've experimented with some of this. Some of this has occurred that before I even came. I, I look at like our Apples of Gold ministry, where a number of women, and I hesitate to call them older women, mature women in our congregation, are meeting with younger women and, and just teaching them things like cooking and yet also other things that they want to know. I think of what was happening with our ambassador class, a number of you just last year who went down and met with our our preschoolers, our three, four, and five-year-olds, and you taught them songs that you sang when you were a kid. And the richness of the experience. We've talked in kids' ministry about the fact that wouldn't it be really neat because a lot of these kids, and there's a number of these kids, who grow up with grandparents who are so far removed, that it's, not even, it's so far extended away, that they see them only a few times a year. Wouldn't it be really neat if we had kind of an adopt-a-grandparent kind of program here so that when a, a young child comes into church who's four, five, six, seven years of age, they see one of these grandparents and they, they know that that person loves them? Well, what's interesting about this is our desire is not merely to have a bunch of generations meeting independently, but we envision a community where we can do this life and ministry together. Yet, you need to know this is uncharted territory. This past summer, 
Leadership magazine, they came out, their leadership journal came out, and the whole magazine was given to this phenomenon. And the question that was being asked is how, when the culture and the church seems to be moving back to a multi-generational feel, how do you do it? And they were asking different leaders about what was going on in their church. And one leader in this, uh, in this edition of, of a church says this, multi-generational ministry in our day is uncharted territory. In past centuries, because cultures changed more slowly, when people entered the church, they entered a church culture. They sang common music and spoke a common language. Today, church life has largely been contextualized to reach people in a popular culture. But pop culture has fragmented into all kinds of microcultures in such a way the church can't hardly keep up with it. Generations are generally segregated by media, clothes, music, entertainment, and technology. Trying to reach different generations simultaneously has become difficult. And they ask him a few more questions, and he concludes by saying, you know what, we're making this up as we go. Now you laugh because people have said, you know, why don't you find the churches that are doing this? And I say, you know, there's not a lot that are doing this. Because I believe God is in the process of leading and moving and teaching the church in one sense to move together once again. Because what's important now is how do we love? How do we get together? How do we celebrate one another in this whole process? And so while preserving the need for generations to meet together, still like in adult classes and small groups, because you need to be together with people of your own age. Every age wants that. There are three significant ways that we want to be intergenerational. And one of those is leadership. In leadership. I serve alongside a staff with a wide span of ages. On staff, we have members who range in age from 22 years of age, not me, to about 87 years of age, also not me. Not only that, with the elders. We, we want an elder board, a leadership team that also brings together these ages. I serve with an elder board with members that range from their 30s to their late 60s. And what I find is interesting is people sometimes wonder, well, how do you make decisions? I can tell you every, every time we meet, there is this incredible sense of different perspectives all coming together. And it's not always pretty. The subtext of every conversation we have is how do we bring about what God is calling us to do with all these different generations in a way that glorifies Him and allows for people to engage one another. Worship. We really want to bring the people. So why do we, you know, just do this service and do that service? No, we want to learn how to do this, folks. I just have to share with you what, what's out there right now. And they, the statement is now: in the next ten to fifteen years, there will not be a traditional contemporary worship divide anymore, because one generation is passing away. And what's happening is this younger generation likes to sing some of the hymns, maybe not the way they were, you know, in the same music context that they were written, but there's a, there's a movement back. In fact, there's a whole movement among youth towards a reformed kind of um, tradition. And so what we're saying is, God, how do we do this? How do we move together in worship so that when we do come to worship, we see all the different colors of hair and no hair, Right? And, and so worship is, is, is one of the things we're seeking to do this. We're guided by a principle that says worship will not be about builders, boomers, busters, millennials, but about the people of God of all ages. There are many places in the church life that you have these groups that are based on life experience, and it's both appropriate and necessary. But where 
think about it. where do we meet together as the diverse yet unified people that we are by God's grace. It's our desire that the Holy Spirit will lead us into ways of worship that are continuous with the historic witness of worship given to the church throughout the ages. And at the same time, desiring that he lead us into the new discovery of forms and patterns that meet the needs of the people of this day and this culture. There will always be opposition to all new forms of worship. Because people actually have a spiritual soundtrack when God met them. And usually at that point in life, that is the thing that most relates to their heart. The key is to let other people have a spiritual soundtrack and to learn how to do this and respect it together. And so what's really interesting, um, I read a response from someone who was responding to these new forms of music. and, And this was their comment. You may even relate to this. They write, this is their sentiments, there are several reasons for opposing this new form of worship. It's too new. It's too worldly. Even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style, and because there are so many new songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than on godly lyrics. The new music creates disturbances, making people act disorderly or or wanting to move to it. And the preceding generation got along without it. Those comments were made in 1723. And they were made in criticism of Isaac Watts, who wrote Joy to the World, and I Sing the Mighty Power of God. Because the church in that day was going through a cultural shift musically. They were beginning to invite into churches instrumental music. Because in that time, they didn't sing the hymns. They often just spoke them. That's what the psalms were about. And now they were adding instruments. And when they were adding instruments, people were singing and people were beginning to move to the music. And there was a letter that came and there were lots of reactions to it in that day that said this Isaac Watts and this kind of new music is for the birds. That's just going to happen when new forms of... If you're feeling that, you know, that's... Okay. That's okay to have those feelings. It's now how do we process them and move together as a body and, and leave room? Because the next thing, now before I go there, I want to say one other area that we really want to be intergenerational crossing over in is not just in leadership and in worship, but specifically in service. That's why um, I, I really, we've been praying as leaders and we've been asking God how he wants to work through us. And as we've been praying, we have seen over the last year how this impact our world, the whole area of global missions, the, the kind of what we call global, this is global stuff locally, like this hospitality house for Chinese, the things that we're doing here within our own community through community care. God is just just developing. Be, you know, it's like we are watching him work in raising a people who are feeling prompted by God to do those things. And as a result of that, we've also been paying attention and moving. And, and that's one of the reasons why we're, we're just saying, God, is, is, is this what you want? Is this interim outreach thing? Is, is, this, is this where you're leading right now? And we're asking the body to really pray about it. But one of the areas that we, we do know, no matter what happens, we want to grow in, is through serving together. That's where you can really rub shoulders with one another. 
Like when they're actually working on a, on a house or on a project and you're, you're with someone and you can just talk to that person and, and get to know that person. Or if you're actually in some place where you're serving food or you're packing food, you get an opportunity to be next to that person. Take advantage of those things. Don't always stand with someone that you know. Take time. I just ask you to consider. One of the questions we'll ask in our life groups this week is, do you know someone, not in your family, but of another generation? And do you know their story? Do you know much about them? And the last thing I want to just share is the vision to be multi-generational. It, it requires us to reach the next generation. I love what Psalm 71 says. And it says in verse 14, the cry of the psalmist's heart is for the next generation. But as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, O Sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteousness, yours alone. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me. And to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. And the way we do that is by being present and allowing for that next generation to move in with the way God is moving in them. And, and how do we pass on these truths and allow for them through the ways that they worship and the ways that they work together, the way that God is moving, to do that? And how do we support them? And the question that you have to answer, we have to answer, every generation will have to do this. Even this youth that's coming up at some point will say, how do I pass the torch of faith to that person and allow them to live it out? And not just allow them, but not just to acknowledge, but to accept and then to appreciate how God is at work in their lives. Well, in conclusion, I just I want to share with you, as I've been praying through this, I had someone share with me about a week and a half ago um, some thoughts that they, they had about how God works with vineyards. It's kind of an interesting thing. What I find is interesting is Wyzetta Free is just about 50 years old and has been a fruitful ministry. Those of you who have been a part of it, God has done incredibly wonderful things. God has impacted this community and places around the world. And as leaders and people, we have submitted ourselves to the Father. And the, the thing that this person shared with me was this picture that, that this church is like a vineyard. It's like a vine. And, and as they were praying, they said they began to do some reading about the vineyard and what that's like. And so they, they said to me, I learned something about how the vine master helps to produce fruit in some of his choice vines, especially those that are older. I found it interesting in the parallels to um, the church you're serving, God's choice vine, why is that a free? This person doesn't come regularly here. You see, the vine master was always looking at vines and making certain to see how can they produce the best they can. And he had certain vines that were older, and he loved them. And, and this person shares here that grapevines share a number of qualities with humans. This is what they found out. The lifespan of a vine will depend on how it was cared for over the years. It will depend on its growing environment and the quality of the soil, which is key to its production. Few vines live to be ancient, which is over 100 years old. Roots grow deep and strong, supporting generations of vines and branches. Old vines, though, are more susceptible to disease... They bear, much, they bear less fruit than young vines, and they're smaller in size. Isn't that interesting? 
Interestingly, though, he says, both smaller yield and smaller size of fruit turn out to be benefits with regard to the older vine. Older vines produce grapes that burst with color and character. Smaller grapes have a higher skin-to-juice ratio. Because the skin is where the wine draws its flavor, it actually produces a wine of fuller body and complex flavors. So the vine master is very interested in that older vine because it produces a, a much more full, robust flavor. The wine grower then has to decide at a certain point, because when a wine, a vine gets about 50 years of age, has to make a decision. Do I want to keep this vine growing? Is this a, a vine that can produce? And then when he looks at that vine and makes a choice, he then realizes if it's going to live the next 50 years and be productive, it actually has to be transplanted. It needs to move from one soil base where the soil has lost its nutrients and the culture around it and place it into a new cultural soil base. If he wants volumes of flavor, transplanting becomes essential. To sustain a harvest of exceptional fruit, the vine grower then chooses to transplant that vine into soil. And soil, you folks, is like a living thing. Listen to this. One teaspoon of fertile soil contains 10 to 1,200 million microorganisms and mineral deposits that make up the biological properties of life. So successfully transplanting actually may double the vine's lifespan and promote healthy fruit bearing for another 50 years. Yet, here's the hard part. Transplanting will take a toll on the plant for several years. But uprooting it at midlife is necessary for healthier branches and finer fruit in the future. In fact, to get an idea of what that transplanting is like and what it does to the root structure, you need to understand that some roots grow 30 feet deep, 6 to 7 to 8 feet wide in order to support that vine. It's impossible, the writer says, to transplant a vine without cutting into its elaborate root system. While the vine may appear to shrivel up and die, much activity is taking place in the new ground. And this friend who sent me these thoughts, reflecting on John 15, said this, Transplanting, Kevin, is painful but necessary. The process will wither the vine, break off branches, and leave will shrivel and die. It looks worse before it gets better. How and when will the vine come back to life is what many people think. And then they say, not everyone understands the ways of the master of the vineyard or his chosen timing. All they can see is now. But what's most helpful for the vine dresser and for those in it, what's most helpful is to concentrate not on the uprooting, but the better fruit that will result. The bigger thing that God is calling us to. And while I was reading those thoughts, I was filled with a sense of compassion. Not only for some who are struggling with transplanting, with even what we're doing as a body, but I was thinking of people who in your life right now, some of you, are being transplanted. You, you, maybe you've lost a job. I had someone come up after the first service and say, you know what, um, the person had retired and was in a transplanting time. It is a difficult thing. And you may be in that place in your life. You may have a loss of someone that you deeply cared about. But you know what's really interesting in this whole passage? Jesus makes this point. He turns to his disciples and he says, I chose you. We often want to think that we chose him. He chose you. He loves you. And you know what Jesus' call is to each and every one of us? Get yourself 
connected to the vine, who is Jesus, and allow for his life to flow through you. And you will, the promise is, you will, we will produce fruit that God desires. I'm going to ask us to pray. Father, it is our desire, it is my desire, it is my prayer for each and every person here. There are people who are going in their own lives personally right now through a transplanting. You are kind of pulling up and redoing the roots and putting them in a, in a new place because you have something in mind for them. And I pray right now for each and every person in that place that you would strengthen their faith, that they would open their heart, they would make themselves so fully available to you that you would do the work in them that you would choose for them to do. God's speaking to you right now. He is doing a work in your heart. And for us as a body, I pray, God, you see us not just as a bunch of individuals, but one body. God, our heart is to say, do what you want to through us and produce in us fruit that will last, that will make you thrilled to be able to give out to impact the world around us, we pray. In Jesus' name.